So our scripture reading this morning is Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read first this morning and then kind of give you a little intro, and then we'll jump into um, less of an outline like you're probably used to me giving and more of just some, like, five observations here, okay? Colossians 3.18, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond slaves or bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And let me just get this out of the way. This passage of scripture we come to this morning is offensive to modern hearers. Okay, probably for at least a number of generations, these kinds of verses where Paul writes them here, he writes similar things in Ephesians, they're looked at and they're labeled as, that's, that's traditional, that's old-fashioned, we have some new and progressive ideas about how to run the family and household and work and all of that. Um, more recently, it's gotten worse where these words are called archaic, regressive, closed-minded, patriarchal, I've even heard them called dangerous in one of the commentaries I was reading this week. So I'm asking you to approach this text with an open mind. You know, understanding and agreeing with me as we just read these words, you can see why we could almost say, even as followers of Jesus, these sound like words from a bygone era, and we've kind of gone past this kind of stuff, right? I want you to understand right out of the gate this morning that the reality is in the cultural and historic moment that Paul wrote and delivered these words over to the church, these words were revolutionary. They were revolutionary. Christianity, and in a text like this, Christianity was, was dignifying and empowering women and children and slaves in a way that no culture and no ideology and no religion in the world ever had. So I kind of am asking you to forget what you think you have ever heard or know about a text like this and just come to it with a little bit of a blank slate, trusting God, and let's explore it together with some general observations. So number one, I want you to notice that Paul addressed each group directly. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, bond slaves, masters. And, and we're like, of course, and we just missed this point. You ever have a situation like this? I remember some parent-teacher conferences type things growing up, or your parents are coming to pick you up from a week of camp, and you're sitting there with, like, your parents and a teacher or a counselor or a coach or someone like that, and this authority is speaking over you and saying, you know, Johnny really needs to work on this. 
and Johnny's doing well here, but not well here, and Johnny needs a little more self-control here in this area, um, but I'm really proud of Johnny over here, and Johnny's sitting there thinking, like, I'm right here. Like, I can hear what you're saying, but there's something that's communicated when a leader is speaking to an authority and kind of leaving out that person who's just eavesdropping, who's just hearing Like, you're talking about me. And what's interesting here is Paul does not say, husbands, tell your wives. Fathers, tell your kids. You know, masters, tell your slaves that that God wants them to know. And, And what's interesting is there's, in other words, there's no mediator of this message. God is speaking directly to each person and each category of persons and saying, You matter to me. You have a relationship with me. And I'm elevating these groups that are often subordinated just simply by talking directly to them. What's also interesting is that these letters, like when Paul writes a letter and then a courier takes it to these various different cities like Corinth or Ephesus or in this case Colossae, it was assumed that a letter like this, the church would gather together and the letter would be read publicly And so the fact that this letter is saying husbands, wives, children, fathers, slaves, masters, is the assumption is they're all gathered together in worship. It's not that some people are kind of left back home or they're they're left waiting in the wings or they don't belong like in the synagogue where you had all these different layers of getting to the access to the word of God. It was just assumed in that culture, that Christian culture, that we've got husbands and wives worshiping together with their children, slaves and masters, maybe even sitting side by side, which is already starting to tell you a little something about the kind of relationship that was expected between the masters and slaves. Because even in the United States, in that hideous institution of slavery that we experienced for hundreds of years... That was typically not the case where masters would be sitting, you know, in their little Southern Baptist church with the slaves right there with them, just saying, hey, you're equals. We're all worshiping God together. But there was a separation that happened in worship. So that's a first interesting thing. Paul addressed each group directly. Number two, I want you to notice every group is given both responsibilities and rights. Now, in ancient household codes, and we've discovered many of these, and people have studied them, and I have not read them myself, like I didn't dig up original resources, but I've read copies of some of them. And people that study these things have said that in ancient household cultures, and in some of these codes, authority figures like husbands and fathers and masters were always given power and privileges and rights, while the subordinate parties got none of those things. They were not empowered. They were not privileged. They didn't even have rights. Basically, husbands had complete control over their wives. Fathers had complete control over their children. Masters had complete control over their slaves. They owed these other groups essentially nothing. They could demand anything. They were like the king of their own castle. You don't question what I say. Now, my point is, if you were familiar with any of these other ancient household codes and you heard what Paul was saying here, it would blow your mind with the concern and the compassion and the care that God is showing, not just for those authoritarian figures, but for the subordinate figures. 
And yes, there are still differing roles and duties within family structures. Everyone's not called to lead or to serve in exactly the same ways, but everyone is given protection and privileges and even rewards. So a little chunk of my message right here, I just want to go quickly through these six categories. You'll see there are three pairings, husbands, wives, fathers, children, and slaves, masters, and just show you how each has both a duty but also a right, a privilege, something that they could fairly expect in this community of faith, okay? So he begins with wives, so I'll begin there. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, modern culture only hears the first two words. Wives, submit. Okay? And, and, and we freak out because this is patriarchy. This is male domination. This is sexism. This is chauvinism. This is misogyny. We come up with all kinds of words. And I would just invite you to hang on for a second because first I want you to notice that Paul is speaking into a culture where women as a category were expected to submit to men as a category. And, and, and right off the bat, Paul is already limiting that and saying, no, like if you're walking down the street and some male just tries to conscript you to carry his stuff for him, the, the idea of scripture is not every woman is submissive to every man and his whims and his demands. He says, I'm only talking about the one man who is your husband. So we hear wives submit as incredibly constraining. The first women who heard this would have heard this as very liberating. Karen Jobes, a commentator, wrote this. How ironic it is that the words that first century wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. When read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. And we saw a few verses earlier back in verse 11 that a redemptive plan was for male and female, for slaves and masters, for Gentile and Jew, it was for all kinds of people. So that's the first thing, is that the women here are actually hearing this is liberating. Secondly, what is submission? I mean, immediately we think modern culture here is you're less than. You are not as valuable as. You're not as smart as. You're not as capable as. So give in, give up, grovel, surrender. That's what we hear today when we hear the word submission. Yet the word here just literally means to arrange yourself under. And very often, it is a fact that more capable people, maybe more intelligent people, maybe physically stronger people, maybe more emotionally aware people, are arranging themselves temporarily and voluntarily under someone else's leadership and doing so is not any indication of all the package of bad ideas that we as moderns bring to the word. By the way, in Luke 2.51, we are told that Jesus submitted to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, and it's the same word. Okay, Jesus, the eternal son of God who became one of us, but he's lived forever. In fact, he created the world and everything in it 
it says that he voluntarily arranged himself under earthly, deeply flawed parents. Okay, so we know that submission is not just this, uh, you're, you're not as valuable as. In fact, you can be greater than. I, I would posit to you that when I see many wives in a godly way submitting to husbands, they may be the stronger one in that marriage because, as many of you know, sometimes it's just easier to lead something than it is to submit to someone else and follow and support and, and round out or complement their leadership of something. Sometimes it takes more gifting, more character, more faith, more love to do the submitting, the supporting. Now, let's flip this to the husbands because he goes on to say, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is also interesting that in ancient household codes, do you know no one had ever before told a man to love his wife? And that sounds really weird to us because the way that we do, you know, courting or dating, whatever you want to call it, and then marriage is it's obviously a voluntary thing. And it's assumed in Western marriage, well, of course he loves me. But do you know that basic love was not assumed in ancient marriages where everything was basically an arranged marriage? You're almost buying and trading a woman, a wife as property and they were not valued. It was not assumed that a husband loved, treasured, took care of his wife. It was simply assumed that he provided basic protections for her. He was a decent guy. But in this culture, husbands could often just like go out. They could fool around on their wife. They could do what they wanted to do. And, and various different cultures were like, well, that's, I mean, that's guys being guys. It's not a big deal. It's not like he's supposed to love her. So this is remarkable that Paul stops and he says, if, I, if I've got one thing to say to a Christian husband is this, love your wife. And love here is not an emotional or sexual attraction. It's not romance. It's not butterflies in the pit of your stomach. You can't require that. The love that he talks about here is the same kind of love that Jesus had for the church when he laid down his life for sinners. One commentator says, love in the Bible is covenantal commitment to presence, advocacy, and flourishing growth into Christ-likeness. And the same writer goes on to say, the husband who loves like this encourages, empowers, and frees. And I agree that this is not the idea of, okay, wives submit, okay, now husbands. Now, feels good to be in control, doesn't it? It's like, no, 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 you, you are giving yourself up in return with this covenant commitment that seeks her best, that empowers her, that affirms her, that equips her, that releases her to be all of the person that she also is in Christ, even independent from you. So that's the positive side of that. You notice negatively, he says, and do not be harsh. The word means literally like pointed or sharp, like the tip of an arrow. And I think what he's saying is kind of twofold. Commentators kind of jump into one of two camps. One could be like, hey, husbands, don't use your words. Don't use your actions and reactions. Don't use what you withhold from her as arrows. Like, oh, you, you weren't the best at submitting, so like I'm going to hurt you. And we start releasing these arrows back. That's, that's one way you could take this. Or as the translation here kind of takes it, is it could be this, this pointedness, this sharpness is actually in the heart of the husband where it is like, I'm, 
I'm embittered. Like you're prickly. Like when, when we get around each other, your, your words have started to grate on me. And your attitude's great on me, and I can't hear any goodness in you, and I'm, I'm just, I'm bitter and I'm frustrated. And it's interesting that Paul calls that out for husbands, knowing that that's unfortunately a direction that way too many husbands go. But now when we bring these two people, these two roles together, we can see the rights of each, right? He's not in a vacuum saying, women, submit. But he's also not in a vacuum saying, husband's love. He's saying, the right is that you have an expectation that in Christian community, other people should be surrounding you, helping you be this kind of husband, guaranteeing these kinds of rights and protections and privileges to your wife and vice versa. Going on, the the third category that he mentions here, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Um, And I know we don't have a ton of kids in here because we don't have separate kids ministries because of COVID and all that. But my kids are in here, so I get to talk to them. I'm kidding, but not kidding. But in our household, we say obedience, and this is like terribly cliche. But we say three three things that kind of model obedience is um, immediately, sweetly, and completely. That it's not really obedience, children, When you sit there and you decide, like, well, I was going to get around to that, but I was just finishing up building the Pepsi Center in Minecraft first. Like, I know you told me to do this because we got to head out the door to church, but I got the thing that I'm doing, and I'll I'll get to your thing. But obedience is like, uh, again, it's an arrangement under. But the word literally means to pay attention, to hear in order to obey. And children of all kinds of various ages, you know that sometimes, like, I don't, I don't, I don't obey because I'm not even hearing. I'm hearing what I want to hear. I'm ignoring kind of what I want to ignore. And so what Paul's referring to here is a surrender of your heart, your mind, your will, your attitude, the willingness to trust God that he's put me in this family. And the flip side of that, interestingly enough, is not parents per se, But verse 21, it's fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And again, I think he's pointing out certain things about men as fathers in this culture and maybe since then that maybe we have a tendency to do and say and withhold certain things that could be deeply discouraging to our children. Things like unreasonable demands. You ever see a child exasperated because they're like, look, I'm doing the best I can. Your expectation is here. My ability to perform is here. Like, I mean, I think of my kids. It's like, I'm a kindergartner, okay? I'm a second grader. I'm in high school. I'm not, like, I didn't go to Ivy League and graduate, so you're expecting things of me that I could never do, and that's a way that we could stir up anger and resentment in our children. Or like a harsh or domineering tone, angry words, ridicule, sarcasm, comparison between siblings. Why can't you be like your brother? You know, withholding praise and encouragement and affirmation where the only words that our kids hear sometimes are just negative, just catching them doing stuff wrong. We try to have this thing in our house of like catching our kids doing something right. Unfortunately, like, I don't know what it is about little boys. They don't respond a whole lot to positive reinforcement. (laughs) It's the funniest thing because you're like, buddy, that was awesome. Like, we are so proud of you. And it's like, yeah, okay. 
you know? And, and, and you like did the exact same thing to our daughter and you would just see her light up and beam and like, really, you caught me doing this good, like, I didn't even know that you noticed that. Um, but, but parents, fathers particularly, do it anyway. Try to be those kinds of encouragers where your kids can count on you. And again, when we bring these pairings together of children and fathers, we see again that God is giving rights and privileges and protections and honor to both parties, not just the party with the power, right? Now we go on to this final pairing, which is slaves and masters. Verse 22 and kind of following, he says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Whatever you do, work heartily. And this is just simple, but basically your duty is like work with integrity. Work hard, okay? And in that culture, I think too many people have rapidly brought this into modern culture and just been like, okay, you all have a boss. Work hard for your boss. This, this isn't that kind of arrangement for the most part. He's even telling this to people who are under the control of another, but he's saying be careful to pursue goals and outcomes and work hard toward the master's expectations. Then masters, again, the flip side, and all, the reason I went all the way through chapter four, verse one, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he's saying be just, be fair, which is equitable. Don't use people. Don't manipulate and exploit people, is what he's saying. Don't withhold justice that is due to someone simply because you feel like you have power over them in your cultural arrangement, okay? But again, and this one's incredible, God has given rights and privileges and rewards, not just to masters who are in control of their household. He's given rights and privileges to servants, I mean, he's saying, masters, you have a right to expect good and honorable work, but, but slaves, listen to me. You have the right to be treated justly and equitably. You have a right to be respected as an equal before God and treated accordingly. You're not someone else's property. And to the degree that someone treats you harshly, do you know another privilege you have? Do you know another right that you have? is the right to know that God sees and will make all things right in the end. And that's this verse 25 the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partialities. God's not like, mm, he has power, so I vote with him. As often our own judges do or juries, it's like, who's influential? Who did I like? Who do I want to side with? Who do I just naturally sympathize with? He's saying there's none of that kind of partiality with God. You get justice. Both parties get justice from God. Now, I'm going to go on with this and, and make a couple other observations, but but what, when I just pause right here, I notice in my own heart a question or concern about each of these pairings. Because I think, okay, Paul, you, you said that wives have the right to expect this from their husbands, and children have the right to expect this from their fathers, and slaves have the right to expect this from masters, and that's all well and good. But, but what if that other party or person isn't living up to their calling? Because God gave them duties too. And what if they're not performing that duty? What if, my, what if my spouse mistreats me? What if my parents are domineering or abusive? What if, what if I do work for some kind of master who's cruel or unjust? Uh, these are all fair questions. So observation three. Each group that is called to a form of submission is simultaneously affirmed in its service for the Lord. 
Did you notice that? Verse 18, wives, your submission is governed by that which is fitting and proper in the Lord. It's not just do whatever he tells you to do. You are serving the Lord Christ. You're honoring a perfect savior, even if you have a lousy husband. Verse 20, children, your obedience is pleasing to the Lord. And even if you have that kind of father who's just like, I could never please him. And if I did, he'd never admit it. He'd still find something wrong to complain about and punish me for instead of saying, well done, way to go. Okay? But he's saying, even if your parents are harsh, unfair, ungrateful, you can know that your attitudes and your actions of obedience, of honoring those parents, are pleasing to God. Verses 22, 23, 24, because I think this is probably the hardest category. He says three times, three different ways. Servants, remember that your master has a master in heaven that he answers to, and you ultimately serve that master. And do you see how these levels of encouragement that Paul's offering here kind of helps you navigate around broken and flawed relationships in your households, in your workplaces? Because it's like, even if I'm trying my best to, to honor God and please God, but I never hear a word of thanks, I never get this reciprocal privilege or uh, empowerment or affirmation or whatever it is, he, he's saying, you can always know that your actions are pleasing to your heavenly Father, to your Savior, to the Lord. Because no one mediates your relationship with the Lord. You can be working for a lousy master who mistreats you and hear the voice of God like, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, one of the major modern complaints of a text like this is that Paul doesn't denounce the institution of slavery. You're like, hey, Paul, why would you regulate something that was awful instead of just saying, this doesn't play in Christian culture at all. Number four, fourth observation, and I think this is important. The gospel creates an environment in which things like misogyny, authoritarianism, and slavery cannot survive. So I want you to understand what Paul is and is not doing here. I think Paul is wise, actually, not to launch a full frontal assault on the Roman institution of slavery, okay? Because what's happening at the time that Paul writes this letter is Christians are already being persecuted from both sides. They're being persecuted by the Jews who look at them and say, you're not us, we're the people of God. And they're simultaneously being persecuted by the Romans and the Greek cultures and saying, well, you're not us either and our problem with your Christianity thing is we have pantheons of gods and you're saying there's only one God. So we'd be cool with you if you were just like, hey, let's add Jesus, whatever, to the thing and not say that he's king because our king is Caesar. So th there's already accusations of sedition, of heresy, of all kinds of things going on. So, so Paul's not like, hey, let me write this letter that if it gets intercepted or read or copied and dispersed, like your persecution, you think it's 100 degrees now? Well, it's about to be 1,000 degrees. So let's ramp it up. Let's go. Like, boom, Christians are in for a good fight. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are like that today. Just like their tone, their, their attitude, the words of just like, man, they never saw a fight they didn't love. 
And there's a wisdom here to Paul saying, can I show you how the gospel destroys something hideous? And you're going to get that as you think about it and meditate on a text like this and start living it out. You're going to realize some of these cancerous things in our society cannot survive if we embrace the good news of Jesus Christ and simply live for him. Beginning with, remember this a few verses earlier, verse 11, Paul said, here in Christ, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And what he's saying is we are ontological equals before God. Whether you're a man, you're a woman, you're old, you're young, you have relative cultural authority or relative cultural subordination. He says it doesn't matter. You are equal in Christ before God. So the greatest person has duties to care for the least. And the least has rights that the greatest cannot take away. And if we believe that, how would that impact the way we treat one another? See, what Paul's doing in a text like this, when I say the gospel creates an environment in which misogyny, authoritarianism, slavery cannot survive, because what he's doing is he's saying, um, male, M-A-L-E, male, you are no longer the center of your home. You're not the center of society. I said, elsewhere, husbands, you're the head of your wife in the way that Christ is the head of the church. So leadership, care, protection, sure. But you're not the center. He's saying Christ is the center. The male is not the center of his marriage. He's not the center of his parenting. He's not the center of his business endeavors. Christ is the center. Okay, so... How does male chauvinism survive in a community where every husband is loving and serving and empowering and affirming and sacrificing for his wife? The way that Christ loved and gave himself for his bride, the church. See, misogyny, sexism, whatever you want to call it, that, that can't survive in a society where we're coming around that guy and saying, hey, like, we still got work to do, but this is not Okay. She is your equal in Christ, and you are not treating her as your equal in Christ. You are not loving her the way that Christ loved his church. How does authoritarianism or child abuse or neglect persist in a community? Notice this, where every father is not only physically protecting his children, but he's also aware of their emotional needs. Unheard of for this time. That someone would write a household code and say, fathers, I'm not, even, I'm not only telling you what to do physically with your kids, I'm not giving you a blank check of authority over them, but are you aware when what you're saying and doing and withholding is emotionally disturbing to your children? Nobody wrote stuff like this back then. But God was concerned for the heart of the child, that they not be led astray, that they not be wounded how does slavery survive in a community where every master sees those with less power and resources as, oh, those are my equals before God? 
And therefore, I will, even if I remain a boss or a master in some sense, I will demand justice and equality for them. I will use my relative resources and power to demand that for others. And that's what the church ought to be doing today in issues like slavery and child trafficking and and racism to the extent that we still see some systemic stuff going in our culture saying if we have relative authority and power we're going to use that to lift the people around us and then what happens to these horrible institutions and habits of culture is they just don't survive in the church because of the way we're committed to treating one another And then let me summarize all this with one final point, number five. The result of the gospel when applied to relationships is a community of mutual love and respect. It's that simple. I mean, you you step outside these doors, you see what's going on with politics and mask wearing, and you could take any number of different hot topics right now, and what you see pervasively in culture is not like, wow, we all love and respect one another. We really appreciate people with differences of opinion and conviction. You see the very opposite. But what ought to happen is that people walk in off the street and are introduced to the community of faith and little pockets of community of faith all over the city, all over the state, all around the world. And they experience, wait, there's something here. And you'll notice if you go back to this now, you'll see in the Christian household code, there's an emphasis on reciprocity, mutuality, and a balance between differing roles but equal worth before God. Okay, so reciprocity, mutuality, and a balance between differing roles but equal worth before God. So my question that I want to wrap up with as we just apply this and then we're done, is as you go in your mind through the different relationships in your life, some of you are fathers, your husbands, your moms, your wives, your friends, you are neighbors. Some of you are bosses, some of you are employees. But I, I just invite you to go through this web of relationships in your life, particularly internal to the church, and just say, how does each person in my orbit experience love and respect from me? How am I honoring and glorifying God by the way that I treat a wife, a husband, a child, a neighbor, a peer? And by the way, the Bible very wisely does not spell out certain things in grand detail. Did you notice that? I mean, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't become embittered against them. I mean, children, obey your parents. Like, these are not, it's like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? You know? And you wish that the Bible had, like, a a commentary in the side notes or something. Like, okay, I read the principle, but, like, what about this? And what about this? And, I mean, do you mean this? And in this kind of circumstance, what do I do? And, and I actually love that in a way because what this means is like this word of God, this gospel can be brought into different cultures, different time periods around the world. And instead of just stamping one thing and being like, well, this is the, the 20th century American way of doing Christianity. That's how we should all do it. It allows for flexibility. I look at some of my closest friends and the relationship between the husband and the wife does not look like Marty's and my relationship. And yet, 
I would say they're honoring these principles of Scripture just as much as we are. You know, so it's, it's not putting a, a footprint of saying this is exactly how the, like, wife stays home and she bakes and, and she keeps popping out kids because, you know, it's like, whoa. And some of you are like, but you brought that mentally to the, the Some of you brought that mentally to the text of, like, that's what it means to submit. But it doesn't say that anywhere. So I'm also saying let's be very careful. Let's be very careful as we teach through the word of God that we not say, oh, husband, okay, Here's what you do. Boom, 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 boom. Why? I mean, there are traditional roles, but that's not necessarily a biblical role, and our submission is to the authority of God's word, not traditional culture or progressive culture. We just want to honor God, and we want to honor the people that God put in our lives. So how do you do this? You look to Christ. You look at the way he loves you. You look at the way that he's invited you into a community where you are respected, you are honored. Though you were broken and sinful, he brought you in. He loved you. He forgave you. You look at his sovereignty and think, out of all the parents in the world, something I had no choice over whatsoever, he gave me mine. And he gave you yours. For some reason, to accomplish some kind of good in your life. So follow Jesus in faith. You know, again, if you have very negative examples of these kinds of relationships in your life, he's still saying, but you can still trust God. You can still fear God. You can still enjoy God. You can still love God. You can still obey God. You can still please God, and he will affirm you in your pleasing of him. So let his heart attitudes, what we talked about last week, let his heart attitudes of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, forbearance. Let all of that first fill you and then let it flow through you so that you bring love and respect to the relationships in your life.